Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 75. This week we bring you two rather dark tales of fantasy short fiction, beginning with The King Beneath the Waves by Peter Fugazotto. Peter is a writer of fantasy and science fiction. His short stories have been published in Heroic Fantasy Quarterly and Grimdark magazine. His gritty fantasy series, The Hounds of North, was launched with The Witch of the Sands in 2014. He is a lifelong martial artist and a world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Visit peterfugazoto.com to learn more and get a free book. The story is narrated for us by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle and used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google+, and he occasionally tweets as at Kibitza. The King Beneath the Waves originally appeared in Grimdark magazine number three. Grimdark explores the grittier side of science fiction and fantasy, and their content has also appeared on our sister podcast, Starship Sofa. Links to the issue and their website can be found in the show notes. And now, The King Beneath the Waves, by Peter Fugazotto. Wording could not break free. The frigid sea held the boy, his feet churning, tired arms paddling. The rocky shore, so close, taunted him with every swell. His lame foot felt heavy as a stone. Just as he was ready to give up, a wave lifted him. The water folded and he tumbled head over heels against sand and stone, grey sky replaced by a veil of bubbles and froth. His hands dug at broken shells and shiny weed, and he crawled out of the embrace of the sea. The water pulled at him, but it could no longer drag him back. 
he would not join Hryoth and the longship in the depths. Blood and sea water dripped into a tide pool, disturbing the reflection of his emaciated face, his pale hair, the gash across his forehead. Look, the little shit got spit out from the sea. Can't escape us that easy. Oslaf, the only one Werting wished would have drowned, shuffled across the sand. Behind the old man, six others that survived were stripping off sodden furs and breeches, hanging them from branches and slapping bare skin. One of them gathered salvaged axes and shields in a pile. Get wood, Oslaf, you and the waif, said Rugar, his wet grain beard clinging to the old scars on his chest. We need fire or we'll die. By the time the sun slashed orange across the horizon, Wirting was finally dry enough that he no longer shook uncontrollably. Fat Henging had found a few muscles and they boiled them in Emod's shiny helmet. The young clan warrior grumbled that the helmet was a gift and it would be ruined. Wirting was still hungry, but he knew better than to say anything. Hrayoth was an idiot, said Emod, glancing in a small shard of mirror and smoothing his blonde beard. Any fool could have seen the storm brewing. He should have stepped aside for someone whose eyes hadn't failed. Someone wearing a shiny helmet, said Rugar. He sat with his sword on his lap, his whetstone singing. Why the fuck not? Emod kicked the pile of discarded shells. Three miserable months, village after village, and what? Copper coins and rusted axes. Don't forget Maeve. Fat hanging hid his snickering behind a fist. His red hair curled like flames. His fucking pet crow. Maybe it's better the fool sunk the ship. We go raiding and we return with a bird. No bird now, said Fat Hanging. Rugar shook his head. Leave it. The man made a mistake. Elders should be respected. Imod burst out laughing. Dawn brought dark swirling skies and the eight survivors began plodding north on the shingle. At first the clansmen bunched together, laughing and telling stories. But as the day dragged and the rain returned in sudden squalls, they stretched along the beach. Black clouds, piled thick, ate the sun. The boy Werting with his lame foot brought up the rear. Ahead of him, walking side by side, were Rugar, Irem and Wolf, who had managed to swim to shore with his prized axe. Further ahead shuffled old Oslaf, his mouth moving in silent curses. At the front marched Emod, his helmet shiny in the gloom, and at his heels fat hanging and the baby-faced giant Hrolf. They were a four-day trudge from the river mouth, then another two days to the clan village. Werting wondered how far they were from his own village. If he ran south, would they come after him? Werting's gaze drifted between the ragged sea and the dark wall of trees beyond the dunes. Hryoth, the drowned captain, had been the one who kidnapped him. A seven-year-old boy dragged from his house, his mother's screams piercing the laughter of the raiders. His last memory of the village, black smoke against a bright blue sky. Werting stopped walking. The other men stopped a quarter of a mile ahead when they noticed he was no longer with them. They shouted, they waved, they cursed. Eventually they sent Oslaf. 
You stupid little shit. Working turned his head just enough that the blow caught him on the skull rather than his ear. Making me walk back to get you? The sea slid around the boy's ankles. The tide had pulled back, exposing writhing sand crabs. I should break your other foot. Worting remembered that day. He'd thought they would not come after him. He was no prize, a malnourished, undersized boy. But his captors had sent Oslaf. When the old man caught up with him in the pines, he smashed Worting's foot with a stone to keep him from running. Returning to the village, Oslav said the boy had fallen and was lucky that trusty Oslav had found him. Werting and Oslav were almost caught up to the others when Werting stopped and pointed. From beneath the waves, a ring-whorled prow jutted out of the black waters. A once golden banner sloughed from the mast. Iram squinted across the clapping waves. A boat of the spear people? Ruined now. Hidden by the tides, said Rugar. He unbelted his sword and pulled off his boots. I'll see what bounty she holds. With all sea, said Emor, also quickly shedding his clothes. I'll watch the gear, said Hanging. You too, boy, said Rugar to Worting. You come help me. Then the scarred warrior was in the waves, wading towards the old shipwrecked vessel. The boy had his shirt pulled over his head when he heard Emord whispering to Hanging, Acts like the boy's his servant now. Thinks he's captain now. Another old fool to sink the next boat. The fat man chuckled. Out with the old. I'll raise my sword for you. Follow you far into the night. Worting was the last to unclothe. Rugar and Emod had already reached the boat. The others were nearly there. The water slapped Worting's shins. He turned to hanging. The fat man was slipping slimy kelp into Wolf's oversized boots. He lifted a conspiratorial finger to his lips. Despite the retreat of the tide, when the boy reached the boat, the water was at chest level. The wood of the prow was sea-blackened, mottled with mussels. From beyond the shoals it would have looked like a rock among the shore. When the tide was fully in, the boat would have been completely submerged except for the mast. The raiders stood on the boat, laughing and shouting. Worting pulled himself onto the deck. Rolf stood over a chest split by Wolf's axe, spreading a chainmail tunic between his hands. Look at this, boys! Rugar hefted a sword in his hand, sighting the line of the blade. After all these years, and it still shines. The others hacked open the remaining chests. Bladed weapons, coats of arms, and war tack. Irem's hand emerged from a leather sack, fat coins leaking between his fingers. Oslav hoisted an iron knife, its wooden hilt covered in ornate runes and gambled from foot to foot. Look at this beauty! Rugar slapped the knife out of the old man's hand. It rattled on the deck, then slid past Wooting into the dark waters, the heavy iron head dragging it down. Rugar drove a thick finger into Oslav's chest. The plunder is for the men of the Shark Clan, not for slaves. The clan warriors sprawled on the beach in a loose circle. When they had discovered barrels of mead in the hole, they decided the rest of their loot was not going anywhere. 
Worting returned to the fire with an armload of branches scavenged from the forest floor. The woods were dark and cold, a place where the sun rarely warmed the spongy earth. He wondered how the trees did not topple rising from such rot. Oslav squatted among the warriors. They had dressed him up in a woman's fur robe and embroidered slippers taken from one of the chests. A blow from Emod had quelled his protests. The bounty of the fucking gods, Rugar howled, dribbling me into his grey beard. The others raised their cups. Getting hungry, said Henning, his hands spread over his ample belly. More lovely seaweed and mussel soup, chimed Rolf. As long as the young king of the world doesn't mind us using his helmet, Iram sneered. Imod belched. Boy, come get my bucket. Worting came to his side, brushing splinters from his hands. Sit, boy. Imod's breath seeped of sweet honey. I'll let you prove yourself, he hissed into Worting's ear. When I lead the clan, any who prove their worth will be one of us. Learn to wield a blade, drive a ship through the breakers. Even you, an equal, the old ways have to go. Stop your lover's whispers, said Henning. Send the boy for muscles. My belly is rumbling. The sea had receded. Midnight blue crabs skittered around the exposed rocks and the air stank from stranded seaweed. Where the retreating wash collided with the waves, the water hissed. Worting's bad foot ached deep in the bone. The old witch had told him it might mend, but he doubted it. Oslav had crippled him for life. He would never escape. Icy water swirled around his waist. The muscles held fast to the hull of the boat. Worting's fingers bled with the effort of prying them free. Then he remembered the iron knife that Rugar had slapped out of Oslav's hand. The low tide exposed the vessel, nearly to where the dark wood had splintered on the rocks. He climbed onto the deck and searched. The iron knife rested against a large, unopened wooden chest that had been beneath the sea when the clansmen were looting. The knife was heavy. He swiped at the air, then jabbed. In his mind he saw the shark clansman, his iron knife plunging between ribs and slashing throats. He scraped the blade against the deck and the muscle peeled off. It clanged into the bottom of the helm. Would they take the knife from him when he got back? Emod might let him keep it. Most likely Oslav would smack Worting and snatch the weapon. Oslav should have been nicer. He too had been stolen from his village. Worting plunged the knife into the wooden chest, imagining it was Oslav. Then he could not yank it loose. A shout pulled his gaze to the shore. Rugar was waving him back and rubbing his belly. Emod was kicking Oslav as the old man stripped bare and stepped into the sea. Even from this distance, Worting could see curses pouring from his lips. The boy grabbed the knife with two hands and worked it back and forth. Then without warning, the chest popped open. A body lay in the chest, submerged in seawater. It was a man with a braided beard, hands crossed over his heart, silver rings on his long fingers. He wore a fine chainmail jerkin that trailed to his broad thighs. He appeared to be about the age of Rugar, 
His eyes were closed, his smooth white skin like ivory. On his head he wore a simple gold band with a large red gem set in the middle and a helix of embedded pearls running its length. Time and water had not touched him. Werting imagined that he must have been a king, and this was the vessel in which his followers launched him out alone over the waves. Maybe he should just leave things alone. He could set the lid back on the chest. But he wanted, if even for a moment, to wear the crown of a king and imagine that he was free. He slipped the crown from the king's wet grey hair. The king's eyelids lifted. Werting jumped back. The king's lips parted. His pale bloodless flesh peeled back in strips to chin and brow. The skin and muscle disintegrated, clouding the water. Then the water cleared. Where the king once lay, a skeleton grinned. Werting's breath caught high in his throat. Then a blow knocked him to his knees. Oslaf tore the crown from the boy's hands. The old man climbed to the prow, waving the treasure, shouting to the others to come see what he found for them. It was Rolf's turn to try on the crown. Ha 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 look at me. I'm the king beneath the waves. The crown perched askew on greasy strands of blonde hair. I was a great king, but then I died and my boat sunk. Werting huddled close to the fire. The stars hid behind the clouds. A line of surging white waves crashed against the sand. That was inspired, Irum smirked. Let Rugar have a turn. I'll have plenty of time later to wear it, said Rugar. Rolf trotted with the crown on his head, pausing in front of Oslav. Old timer's turn. The crown sunk over Oslav's skull, catching on the tops of his big ears. Go on, tell us about the king beneath the waves, demanded Rolf. Oslav unfolded from the sand. He adjusted the crown, but no matter what he did, it hung at an angle, a shimmering slash against his brow. The king beneath the waves, shouted Rolf over his cup. Oslav spit into the fire. No king beneath the waves when this crown sits on my head. Oslav, first son of Oslu, scourge of the ragged coast, ring-giver, boon to his men. No line of kings. Men of the axe and spear, we turned back the night. Chiefs knelt at my father's feet, pressed their foreheads to his hand. We ruled the ragged coast, as was our right. Until the treachery of the shark clan, the lies, the gift of death. I still hear the screams of my father from the flames of the longhouse. Emord cuffed the old man's head, sending him and the crown to the shingle. The strong eat the weak. He kicked Oslav in the side so hard that bone cracked. The young warrior plucked the crown from the dark sand. They should have speared you that day. A blight you have been, slave. Let Rugar have a turn, Irem hissed. Emod scoffed. Game's over. Old bastards ruined all the fun. It's late, and tomorrow will be a long day hauling our find north. He settled against a driftwood log, laying the crown on a shield salvaged from the wreck. Werting curled close to the fire. He tried to sleep, but a cold wind licked his neck and his foot surged with pain. 
The flames of the dying fire flickered in the eyes of the men, and a line of light pulsed along the crown. Finally exhaustion swept over him and he slept. Working woke to whispers. Thinks he's more than he is. We can always cut him down to size. I'll cut his fucking throat. Embers rippled orange in the fire. The stench of rotten fish rode on the jolting breeze. Wirting's clothes hung damp, the cold soaking to his bones. He tugged a salvaged sailcloth closer around his shoulders and fell back asleep. Waves thundered so hard that they woke him again. Stars flickered through a gash in the clouds. You can't trust the bastard. He's coming for you. A grunt. Out here, who will know? The crabs and the gulls? Worting woke to a cramp in his foot. Would dawn never come? A whisper. Men of axes and spears knelt at my father's feet. It was Oslav's voice. Worting drifted as if the tides carried him away. The sky had paled, but the sea was still black, oddly silent, caught between the pull of the tides. Worting knew it would not last. You, of all people, accusing me! Rugar stood over the dead fire, hands clenching his leather belt. The sky was grey, the sun smothered in clouds. Where's the fucking crown? Emod dug at the sand around the pilfered shield. He stopped and pointed a finger at Rugar, Irim and Wolf. One of you snuck over last night and took it. Rugar laughed. Couldn't it have been hanging or Hrolf? Or one of the slaves? Hrolf scratched his head. I didn't see nothing last night. Too dark. Plus my eyes were closed. Is your head hollow? snarled Irim. Big Wolf rose and cracked his neck left and right. His axe hung heavy between his slack arms. Why make a big deal out of nothing? We didn't have the crown before yesterday. If I find it, I chop it into six pieces, one for each of us. With those words, he lifted his axe and drove it down, shearing one of the driftwood logs in half. A sudden gust swirled the ash from the fire pit. Worting covered his eyes with his forearm. Then rain came in icy pellets. Enough, said Emod. Grab what you can carry and we'll bring a ship back for the rest. The men quickly layered themselves in armour, stacked their shoulders with shields and spears, and hoisted bags of coin. It was all going well until Wolf stepped into his boot. He screamed as he ripped out a foot covered in rotten kelp. Fat hanging bent over laughing. Wolf's arms arced, axe in hand, and cleaved hanging from neck to shoulder. Worting stumbled, hands tearing at the sand, heels digging to scuttle away. One of the spears from the king's boat, old, heavy, and iron-tipped, flew from Hrolf's hand, and Wolf staggered, fists wrapped around the rune-carved shaft. He twirled and fell into the sand. His face landed next to Worting's. Wolf's eyes rolled, white, then blue. Tell her! He cleared his throat over and over and then coughed a bloody glob onto the sand. Worting scrambled away. The clansmen stood wide-legged, swords pointing, 
They clustered, Rugar and Iram shoulder to shoulder and Hrolf to Emod. The only sound was the heaving of their breaths. Working rolled behind one of the driftwood logs and crouched, his hand closed around the iron knife. The clansmen circled the fire pit, the rain pinging off helmet and shield. Oslaf, too, had hidden behind one of the logs, spitting sand from his lips. It sounded as if he were laughing. Rugar spoke first. Never content to be in your place. Emod answered, You can't have what isn't earned. Doesn't have to end this way, boy. Put your tail between your legs, give back the crown, and we'll forget all about this. Emod laughed and then spat on the beach at Rugar's feet. They paced in a circle, swords wagging, eyes sharp. Then Emod had enough. He kicked up sand and charged. He went for the smaller and older Irem, leaving Rugar to deal with the giant Hrolf. But Irem was not as fragile as Emod had hoped. Irem dodged to the left and Emod's sword clanged against his raised shield. Rugar wasted no time in charging at Hrolf. The baby-faced giant backpedalled, unintelligible words slipping from his smiling lips. Rugar came in hard, sword arcing over his shoulder. Werting could see the path of the sword and imagined raising his own weapon overhead to block the blow. As soon as Rugar's sword made contact with Hrolf's raised blade, the wily veteran kicked the giant just below his breastbone. Then they were tangled. Oslav dragged himself along the sand, a trench marking his path. His icy fingers peeled at Werting's arm. Watch them kill themselves. Our day will come, all those years of suffering. Werting tore himself from the old man's clawing hands. Wiping the rain from his eyes, he watched the two pairs of battling men, lips snarling, glistening teeth, the screech of metal, sand billowing around shuffling feet, a scream, a sword dropping, the spray of blood, a knife in a fist, the pounding of flesh, cracked lips whispering a prayer into another's ear. Only two remained. Rugar, one ear half torn from his bloody scalp, and Emod, drops of bloody rain gathering in his smooth golden beard like rubies. The warriors circled, kicking sand, flicking swords, and tossing curses. I'll eat your heart! Tears dripped down Rugar's cheeks. A stain of blood seeped from his gut and down his thigh. All of this for what? Your days are done, old man. Rugar spit blood. He stumbled, sword wavering, the point dropping to the sand, then lifting. Emod shook his head. This day. Oslaf jeered from behind the log. Werting hunkered down next to him. The next time Rugar stumbled, Emod charged, screaming as his weapon slashed downwards. Rugar lifted his sword diagonally over his head with both hands, his left supporting the blade. Emod's sword sheared metal and Rugar's fingers flew into the sand. Rugar screamed, reversed his blade in his good hand, spinning it around his head, and cut hard into Emod's exposed neck, sending the young clansman crumbling to the sand. Rugar stepped on Emod's chest to pull free his blade, he lost his hold on the blood-slick grip and fell hard on his back. He lifted his hand. Blood pulsed out of the stumps of the fingers. Oslav, a binding cloth! His other hand fished around the wound in his belly and came out dripping with blood. Hurry now! 
The old man tottered around the log and knelt beside the fallen warrior. I won't forget this, slave. Oslaf smiled wide, his thin hair heavy with the weight of the rain. The old slave straddled Rugar's chest, knees pinning arms, and squeezed the fallen man's throat. The rain cracked against the flat black sea. Oslav dragged Werting by the wrist into the cold waters. Took it while they slept. The boy's lame foot clipped a stone beneath the rising sea. He bit his lip to conceal his curses. Thought one or two of them would survive. Oslav laughed into the swirl of clouds. All these years, biding my time, I've spit in their food, gnawed holes in their shirts, sand in their boots. Let me go, said Werting, jerking his arm. The grip on his wrist constricted so tight that he felt the bones might snap. We're free now, don't you see? They reached the black-hulled boat. Water lapped at its hull. The tide had not yet reached the high mark. I hid the crown where we found it. We'll be rich, boy. Oslav led him to the submerged chest. The old man gave a toothy grin, then ducked beneath the waves. The rising sun, pale but sneaking out from the thickest of the clouds, transformed the ocean into a mirror, and Werting saw himself, a boy, tousled hair, freckled, still unshaped, a boy who could become anything. Oslav broke the surface, the crown held aloft and jerked to a stop. His smile vanished. Take the crown, boy, my foot's caught. The band of gold was heavy in Werting's hand, as if it fought to return beneath the waves. Oslav ducked down and then emerged again. His eyes bulged. Water ran from his nose and mouth. Give me the iron knife. The planks are like stone. The boy stepped back towards the prow of the boat. Werting, the knife! Dark strands swirled through the ceiling of cloud. A squall descended battering the shivering boy with icy rain and wind. Give me that fucking knife, boy! The tide climbed the hull. Werting, my little friend, please! Hours later, when the sun began to descend, Werting slid down the deck and stared into the waters. Oslav's eyes were wide open and a minnow peered out of his gaping mouth. Werting's own reflection wavered over him. They looked nothing alike. Then the boy looked down at the chest. The skeleton of the king rested beneath the waves. Werting took a deep breath and ducked into the frigid dark waters. As he placed the crown back on the skull, he saw flesh returning to the king's face, his beard sprouting and his eyelids closing. Werting did not linger. Instead, he dove off the deck and swam towards the shore, the sea unable to hold him back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A haunting tale, isn't it? Osloff had played a long game with his tormentors, yet it never occurred to him that someone or something even more patient and less pleased with being mocked might have been waiting as well. Our second story for the week is a dark spin on the legend of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, titled Serpents of Albion, by Adrian Chamberlain. Adrian is a British writer of dark fiction, and lives in the small South Oxfordshire town of Wallingford that serves as a backdrop to the UK television series Midsummer Murders, not far from where Agatha Christie lies buried, dreaming in darkness. He is the author of the critically acclaimed supernatural thriller The Caretakers, as well as numerous short stories in a variety of anthologies, mostly historical or futuristic-based supernatural horror. He co-edited Read the End First, an apocalyptic anthology with Suzanne Robb, and has many other projects in the pipeline besides. His next release will be This Envious Siege, a Lovecraftian account of the Battle of Trafalgar, in exaggerated presses after the war, a collection of supernatural warfare novellas scheduled for October 2015. He is aware of the concept of spare time, but swears that it's just a myth. More information can be found on his website, archivesofpain.com. The story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony is a voice in the Internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to, and he currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. And now, Serpents of Albion by Adrian Chamberlain. Bedivere rode into the sunrise, leaving Arthur alone with the slain warriors and the creature that had caused their deaths. The knight's helm and mail armor flared gold in the rising sun, briefly hiding the scarlet gore of battle and bloodshed. It reminded Arthur of his brotherhood of night's former glory, how they were like shining gods riding to battle evildoers, to uphold the laws of Arthur's kingdom and ensure the land prospered for all. The dream of Camelot had ended. This was the reality of Arthur's reign. 
a charnel pit of twitching corpses, of man and horse bleeding their last together, of raptors gorging on the flesh of fallen warriors and flies secreting their eggs into the wounds of dead knights. The realization it was all over, that Albion would become chaos once more, pained Arthur more than the head wound from Mordred's broadsword. Oh, Merlin, did you not foresee this end? Why did I not listen to you, old friend? He closed his eyes against the sun's glare. He kept them shut, despite the tears that welled and demanded release. He didn't want to see the departure of Excalibur, the sword that had made him king, that had united him with the land he had conquered, ruled, loved, and now lost. He cried out softly, and a raven looked up from its feast of entrails. It flapped its wings once, and then resumed its meal. Only the sinuous approach of the serpent along the churned mud, as inexorable as death, made the carrion bird fly from the corpse. Arthur's head drooped. Bedivere had attempted to remove the king's dented helm with its dragon circlet, but the steel was too deeply embedded into the skull. The crown of a warrior king, now a burden one Arthur would wear until death. The snake extended its tongue, caressing the charnel air with relish. Arthur shifted, moved his stiffening body in an attempt to stave off death's remorseless advance. Bedivere had fashioned a crude support for his king with blankets and saddlebags, but it gave little comfort. When Arthur's vision clouded and lightheadedness returned, he felt Bedivere had propped him against the moldering bones of long-fallen warriors, their skeletal fingers piercing his side for warm, fresh blood and sustenance. Then the spell passed, and he realized the protrusions were nothing but the stirrups and pommel of the saddle, shifting as it sank into the churned mud of the battlefield. The hoofbeats of Bedivere's mount, slow and glutinous as the destrier picked its way through the marshy ground of the blood-soaked battlefield, faded from hearing. Now only the buzzing of flies and the harsh cries of the gluttonous ravens filled Arthur's ears. The snake's sinuous approach reminded him of why this had come to pass. Men fight for an ideal, Arthur, Guinevere had once said. What glory is there in that? God does not approve. God hides his face in the battlefield. Arthur opened his eyes, wincing with the pain of bright golden light from the mocking sun. Bedivere had departed from the plain of Camlin, now descending into the valley and beyond that, to the lake where Excalibur's creators, and, Arthur finally admitted to himself, its true owners, waited to reclaim the sword. He remembered Merlin's disapproving glare at his words, I can conquer the world with this sword! But had there not been sadness in the gruff wizard's eyes also? Disapproval that the young king was more enraptured by the sword than the scabbard? Disappointment that the Chosen One delighted more in the destructive properties of the gift from the Lady of the Lake than its healing powers. But I listened to you, Merlin. I took your counsel, tempered my hunger for battle and glory, with the mission to ensure the sword's power served the common good. Were you not pleased, as I grew to full manhood, that I did not make the same mistakes as my father? The tears flowed freely now, down Arthur's blood-streaked cheeks and into his gore-soaked beard. He imagined they washed the blood away, that the gray of his whiskers was not visible to the newborn son. An old fool, weeping for his loss. Oh, Merlin, I lost the greatest possession in the world. I have lost Camelot, 
the Brotherhood of the Round Table, the peace and security of Albion. His vision hazed and pain flared in his skull. He shifted, averting his eyes from the light, and felt the spear thrusts of warrior spirits from his backrest. He shivered, felt coldness steal into his body as his life fluid leaked away. Now the feelings of guilt, regret, and pain at the betrayal subsided. Numbness, emotional as well as physical. The sight of the still, mangled corpses and motionless, broken bodies of the Brotherhood of the Round Table neither disturbed nor pained him. He no longer felt the hatred that had fueled his savage spear thrusts into his bastard son's abdomen. Like his knights, Mordred was still at peace. Still, motionless, just as we were before the serpent caught the sun's rays, forced Kay to unsheath his sword and attempt to strike it. How ironic that a serpent had brought about another fall of man. Here on this plain, just as in Eden, a snake had unleashed a cataclysm. The parley had progressed well. Mordred was content with Arthur's offer, and it would buy the king time to replenish his forces to hold back the chaos Albion threatened to slip into. A flash of steel, quicksilver in the spring sunlight, and the message was clear to Mordred's knights. Betrayal. God hides his face in the battlefield. The serpent was now five paces away. Its sightless eyes and pale, translucent scales made Arthur frown. This was no adder, surely. In truth, it looked more like a worm freed from grave soil. The serpent's head twisted to the corpse the raven had vacated. Arthur's son and murderer, the usurper Mordred, lay in a pool that was as black as his armor. The spear driven into the pretender had seemingly spilled ichor onto the earth rather than blood, as though Mordred's life fluid was a physical manifestation of the darkness that had possessed him. The serpent's tongue flicked again, sensing the corruption in the air, and the snake shot forward like a lance, no longer a sidewinding reptile but a sickly white, otherworldly missile. Wrapped around the broken spear shaft, it writhed and turned inwards, widdershins, angling closer to the wound in Mordred's abdomen. The blood darkened further, became a liquid blackness that sucked all trace of dawn's sunlight, and to Arthur's tortured eyes the very sky darkened, the sun hiding from the sight of the unholy act of resurrection. For Mordred now stirred, his muscular chest rising and falling as he learned to breathe again. The blackness of his armor was indistinguishable from the ichor that poured in great waves from his stomach wound. The gash undulated and formed new shapes, like the grinning, toothless maw of an ancient witch, or the leering smile of Morgana, who imparted her love of battlefield violence and chaos into her son. Arthur groaned with the memory of his beguilement, how Morgana had sowed her womb with his own seed. My only heir, a veritable serpent. Feeling returned to Arthur, one of revulsion, the sensation he was in the presence of something far more evil than his own son had been. What the serpent did next made him scream. But it was a cry that had no voice, tore from his inner being. It would be heard in only one place, and only one individual could hear it. The serpent thrashed in the black void, a pale tongue in the mouth of chaos. Hissing became vocalized sounds, 
words uttered in a human, female voice, familiar and horrifying. God hides his face in the battlefield. Nimue's harp strings no longer keep me from wakefulness. I have slept for too long. My rest has not eased my weariness. Far from it, for I am more tired than when she first approached me. But now I must rise once more, for Arthur has called. Ah, Nimue, how well you deceived me. You do truly know how to flatter an old man, how to play upon his heartstrings as you play upon your otherworldly harp. I forgot I have human leanings, human desires, human weaknesses. Vanity and lust. How proud I was of the tower I created for you. How my blood pulsed through my veins when I beheld your joy and childlike happiness when the waterfall froze and fragmented, the shards of ice smooth as glass so nary a join could be seen when my structure rose. A tower of dreams. The tower you imprisoned me in. Rather, the tower I allowed myself to be imprisoned in. For I was ready to rest. I believed my duty done. That Arthur was the one who would keep the light shining in this humble little island. A beacon to keep the darkness and the crawling chaos at bay. And for a time, he did. But that is all mortal man has. A little time. Camelot the Brotherhood of the Round Table, the Spirit of Albion. It has a finite lifespan. It is only immortal as a dream, an ideal to spur man to nobility in the light. But Arthur has sown the seeds. His task is done, and his example will shine for future generations. It is time for him to rest, as I have done. But I cannot whisper comforting words to him now. I cannot tell him not to fear the darkness, or the barge that will ferry him to Avalon. His cry awoke me, and now I am aware of the monster on the battlefield. Who is more foolish now, Nimue? Myself, for succumbing to your lies and enchantment? Or you, for your—forgive me for saying—your rather human arrogance and conceit? The serpent's hissing which accompanied Arthur's despair and horror— of course it is familiar. You disguised it well, but I know now the overture to your suite of dreams. Even now I hear the lustrous chords, attempting to lull me back to my rest. Do not think that I am tempted, fair Nimue. Your music has a beauty that would make even the old ones weep themselves into eternal slumber, to embrace your lullaby's dark oblivion. But you forget my love for Arthur, the son I was unable to have. I hear his cries now, and they pierce me, strike me to my very soul in a way you cannot fathom. It is a human reaction, and that is what you cannot understand, Nimue. Humanity. That is what stirred me from my slumber, made me realize the deadly enchantment I have been put under. But how do I escape? Truly, there is nothing more secure than a prison one has built himself. The ice-clear walls of my cell are warped, contorted into crazy angles that press inward everywhere I look, the product of an insane geometry of which only a sorcerer could conceive, that only a foul goddess of the night could use to her own ends. But I built them, so I can undo them. I have that power remaining, at least. The harp strings are strident, 
no longer birthing the mellifluous tones that bewitched me. Now they screech and hiss, just as the unearthly serpent that stalks Arthur. My eyes falter. I feel the desire for sleep press on me, forcing my eyelids shut. No more, Nimue. I will not rest now. I raise overgrown fingernails to my cheeks and press deeply, forcing through the blanket of thick gray beard into the wizened flesh below. I draw blood, and the pain makes me alert, wide awake once more. I will not close my eyes, so the walls of my cell shimmer, become clear as ice, a multifaceted screen on which you play images of beauty and temptation. But Arthur's cry banishes your glamour, shows you for what you are. Your raven locks, rustling in the summer breeze, are tentacles writhing in a dead pool. Your eyes, emerald as the lake from which Excalibur came, are cold, gray orbs of cosmic indifference. I see through you now, see you as you really are, for a human cry of anguish has broken the illusion. Just as I shall break my prison, you can no longer hold me, Nimue. Now you smile coldly, mocking me. I see something new in your eyes. Your irises are gold, and your pupils elongate, become the horizontal slits of a goat. The arrogance in your imagined triumph makes me smile. I will laugh as I break your glamour. For I know now your true nature. Now it is time for you to know mine, and the name of the master I serve. The darkness retreated, became an indistinct, angular form of broken limbs shrouded in black mail and plate armor. The blood was red, and the serpent that formed the hideous mouth which uttered Guinevere's words had gone. The rising sun shone on the returning night. There was alarm in Bedivere's eyes at the sight of his king's deterioration, but also evasiveness. My lord king, he began, his words distant to Arthur's ears. What frightens you so? Arthur's heart, so close to stopping, now raced. The king tried to speak, but his words stumbled over a swollen, dried tongue. He could only point to the prone body of Mordred. Drink, sire! Bedivere dismounted and passed Arthur his waterskin. The liquid was ice-cold, containing a faint taste of the sea, but the king drank greedily. He allowed Bedivere to cradle his head while the water refreshed him. Did you not see, Bedivere? The serpent that caused the battle. It lives still. In my bastard son's open stomach. Bedivere followed Arthur's pointed finger. Nothing but flies stirred in the congealed morass of the usurper's abdomen. He looked at Arthur quizzically, and then glanced away. Arthur hesitated. The serpent was gone. The vision of a grave worm nothing more than a hallucination brought about by the approach of death. Yet Bedivere's expression reminded Arthur of his last command. Excalibur, he murmured, and his voice hardened when Bedivere's eyes refused to leave the ground. When you cast it into the waters, what did you see? The buzzing of feasting flies filled the silence. Finally, the knight looked up and answered. I saw nothing, my liege, but wind and wave. Bedivere. Arthur's words were iron. 
Return Excalibur to the water. Obey me this last time. Bedivere frowned. My lord, I cannot do this. Excalibur must not be lost. Surely another man, another king. Obey me, Bedivere. My time is at an end. The old ones who fashioned the sword will decide when the time is right to bequeath it to a new owner. We must trust in that. Its power, its magic, is too great to be wielded by one who is not chosen. For did not Merlin tell of Excalibur's power to destroy even gods? Arthur's head lolled on his chest as Bedivere gently released him. He watched his knight's reluctant departure through a tilted landscape. The feasting of the carrion crows and the egg-laying of the flies continued, the corruption of the Brotherhood of the Round Table uninterrupted, and Arthur sighed. God hides his face in the battlefield. This time the words were his, and they were his last. In the name and by the authority of Yig, Lord of the Ages, Father of Serpents, I call upon Yogg-Sothoth to open the gate upon the way to the Dark Throne. Strengthen and protect me along the way, Yig, and banish she who calls herself Nimue, the mother of harlots, the daughter of lies, whose rightful name is Shub-Niggurath, from my presence. The walls shatter as easily as winter ice before a fireball. I hear her screams of rage as the prison falls about me. The ice crystals a multitude of jewels that capture the light unleashed from my incantation. They cartwheel and spin, like the stars that hold the secrets of the Old Ones. Shubnigaroth's cries are distant now, as the gulf between us increases. My eyesight is unharmed by the light from the portal's opening, and instead of exhaustion from the sorcery I have unleashed, I feel revived, renewed. It is urgency that powers me as well as exhilaration. It is little wonder the foul beast assumed the form of a lady of the lake and enchanted me to sleep forever. In my dreamless slumber I was unable to see the shifting of the stars, their new alignment, and what horror it foretells for mankind. The maidens of the waterways must all be dead if the dark gods have taken their form. All you needed was for the brightest star, the son of Albion, to pass into oblivion for him to relinquish the sword of power. Do you think I will allow that, Shubnigaroth? Will I allow Arthur to grant Excalibur to the new beasts of the lake? I see your dread siblings now, polluting the lake from which Arthur took the enchanted gift so many years ago. Its beauty and sanctity are gone, corrupted by the foul sisterhood that await the sword of power. Not a moment too soon, for I see a lone horseman, battle-weary and blood-stained, approach the pool. He lifts his sword. No, not his sword. The one sword. The sword of kings. I sense the stirring of the deep ones. They know their time to rise is here at last. The waters of the oceans churn and writhe as the sleeper of Rillier stirs from his slumber, awoken as surely as I have. But I will send great Cthulhu back to his dreamless sleep. Mother Hydra and Father Dagon will not take ownership of the seas with the power Excalibur grants them. I will banish them, 
renew the lake, and restore its purity. I will... I am on the shore, but something is amiss. Why do I crawl upon the ground, struggling to see above the reeds? I cannot part them, for I... I have no arms. I call out to the knight to get his attention. I recognize the man, Bedivere. How he has grown, a true warrior. He holds Excalibur aloft, his mailed fingers caressing the crosspiece. There is no reluctance to cast the sword into the waters. There is a calm resolve upon his features. His arm goes back. But my voice, so commanding and inspiring fear and respect in all Arthur's knights, is gone. Nothing but a sibilant hiss escapes my lungs, and horror fills my heart. Almighty Yig, Lord of the Ages and Father of Serpents, has the power of the Dark Ones grown so that you could only free me by casting me into the form of a serpent? I hear a dark, feminine chuckle, which sounds like the sing-song voice of the one who called herself Nimue. I do not succumb to despair. I am aware of your blessing, Almighty Yig. With the viper's body, you have also granted me its speed and power. The sidewinding movement is now as natural as breathing. The reeds part before my approach, and the moorhens and ducks fly from me. The knight looks in my direction, a frown on his face as he ponders the disturbance. The grieve on his right ankle is dented, its fastenings loosened. The mail is holed around his ankle, and I can see bare flesh. My jaws extended, venom flowing through new vessels. I rear above the reeds, and I strike. A glare of silver, tinted with luminous green, followed by bright red. It is a while before the pain registers. I see my severed body twist and writhe, neatly sliced in twain by the sword of power, splattering fresh blood into the marshes. My vision fades. The world tilts and I see Excalibur fly through the air, sunlight burnishing the blade into an arrow of purest silver. I see the hand arise from the lake's rippled waters but no shimmering Samite sleeves her arm. The three fingers of the hand are pale and sinuous, more like water serpents or tentacles than human appendages. Three times the cold-blooded talons of the Deep One brandish the sword of power, triumphant, exultant, and then Excalibur slides from view and into the depths to give fuel to the fires of horror that will inevitably follow. Now all the gods of light must hide their faces. Arthur, forgive me. I have failed. Arthur awoke, brought back from unconsciousness by the slap of seawater on wooden gunnels. His head felt light, clear, and there was no heaviness or pain. He opened his eyes, and his vision filled with the billowing white sails of a seagoing vessel. A crack of fresh, salt-scented air, and the sail bellied, thrusting the barge from the narrow inlet and into the open sea. He pulled himself up on revived, energized arms, and caressed the velvet covering of the couch he lay upon. It was far more comfortable than the makeshift rest Bedivere had made, but this saddened him. He knew the velvet was his kingly shroud. He turned to face his companions. Three maidens clad in shimmering Samite, their palms held aloft in benediction, piety. Veiled heads inclined, mute, faithless gestures of acknowledgment. Behind the maidens of the waterway, he saw Bedivere, a distant figure on the water's edge. His armor shone once more in the bright sun, 
the last of the Knights of the Round Table stood with his head bowed and shoulders slumped, mourning his king's departure. He raised his arm in a farewell salute, and Arthur returned it with a bow of his head, content to know Bedivere had fulfilled his final command. But the knight was not alone. A figure, clad in armor that was as black as Bedivere's was golden, stood behind him. The sun shone on the figure's abdomen, illuminated the parted flesh and the things that writhed within. They extended from their corpse home, pale and sinuous yet filled with an unwholesome energy, a power that strengthened their serpentine bodies, made them elongate, thick as the strongest swordsman's wrist, and pulse with the same dark life that fed the unearthly worm who had twice visited the battlefield. It's mother, Arthur realized with fresh horror. Morgana's last gift to our son. Birthing new monstrosities in her own image, to which a screaming, writhing Bedivere succumbed. One of the giant worms found his mouth, forced his lips apart to widen entrance into a warm new home. The crack of Bedivere's breaking jaw echoed around the inlet, and not even the waves stifled the sound. Arthur closed his eyes. God had indeed hidden his face from the battlefield, and now only the dark ones held sway. Sunlight dappled the green water, filling the smooth waves with emeralds. Beyond the western horizon, the sun dribbled red into the sea, and a new light shone from the depths of the ocean. The light reminded the despairing Arthur of the glow Excalibur made when it soared through the air, a quicksilver circle of otherworldly power, a green-hued flash like a striking serpent. It reminded him of the Sword of Power's watery home, and the guardians to whom he had ordered Excalibur be returned. He turned to face the three sisters of the barge. They lowered their veils. Horizontal, goat-like pupils blacker than night regarded him from golden irises, and lipless mouths parted in imitation of the womb of Mordred's belly. The serpents of their tongues writhed, extended, and welcomed Arthur to the afterlife. Heroic fantasy and Lovecraftian horror may be unlikely companions, but in this story they are combined for a chilling effect. Adrian completely subverts the tragic but redemptive conclusion usually associated with Arthur's tale, replacing it with something dissonant and disturbing, and turning the king's dream of a glorious future for the world into an utter nightmare. Speaking of nightmares, here comes my weekly reminder. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License, which means you can download the content and you can share it with friends, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors and their elder god-masters. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F. I will answer. Until then, don't anger the Elder Gods. Make them a beverage, whatever type you like. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.